Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio learned about Chicago's hidden gay history, discussed blockchain, and debuted new music from Dos Santos. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for June 8th, 2018. I-94 spoke to Jim Elledge, author of The Boys of Fairytown. Elledge discussed the history of gay life and culture in the city of Chicago, discussed the Byzantine penalties officials used during the so-called pansy craze, and showed how drag queens were once family-friendly entertainment. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. We are joined live from Kentucky through the magic of the phone line to Mr. Jim Elledge. He is the author of The Boys of Fairytown, a book out from Chicago Review Press that has a wonderful subtitle that I want to read. It is The Boys of Fairytown, Sodomites, Female Impersonator, Third Sexers, Pansies, Queers, and Sex Morons in Chicago's First Century. Jim, we are delighted to have you with us today. How are you? Thank you so much. Good morning. I'm fine. How are you guys? We're great. Doing well, doing well. Jim, I wanted to start out, uh, this is a, for those of you that can't figure this out from this lengthy subtitle of this book, this is a history of uh, queer history in Chicago, uh, and a very early uh, history. Uh, Jim is really concerned mainly with the first century of our city from around 1850 to, you cut off around the Hoover era, around 1950, 1960, uh, before... um, most modern American queer studies started. Just to give people a little background, um, the study of homosexuality really didn't take place in America until around the 1970s. It's, it's only existed as a discipline uh, for about 50 years. If memory serves right, the City University of New York was the first university to have an accredited uh, study of, of homosexuality and homosexual history in America. And Jim, I actually wanted to start off by asking you because um, at the University of Chicago, a professor named George Chauncey in 1995 released a very pioneering book called Gay New York, which was considered a touchstone in gay history and gay urban history. And I wanted to start off there and wonder if that influenced you to say that Chicago, the second city, needed its own version of that kind of history. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. I've read that book. I've taught that book. And it seemed to me that... Uh, uh, it was time to let Chicago have its say also. And what we discover in your book is that Chicago, far from being a second city, actually had a, vi- a very vibrant gay culture that stretched uh, into, in fact, we're located in the Bridgeport neighborhood, Bronzeville to our east, was the epicenter uh, of a lot of mid-century and, and first-century uh, gay culture here in Chicago. Can you tell us how that developed and how that came about? Yes, uh, and you're right. Uh, Bronzeville was extremely important in uh, uh, Chicago uh, during the time that I'm talking about. And for the people that I'm writing about, uh, it developed uh, about the same time as the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North happened. And in fact, uh, as I mentioned in the book, several places actually uh, some of the uh, gay men, African-American men, who were uh, a part of that scene in Bronzeville uh, came from the South and moved to Chicago, like many other people, to find some kind of freedom, whether it was economic or social or sexual. And so uh, it just developed over a period of time, and very quickly, uh, in the 1920s, it took off as it did in other places in Chicago. Uh, some of the uh, people, uh, gay men, who moved uh, to Chicago uh, were musicians, so it was uh, very um, likely that they chose uh, Bronzeville as the place to settle down in simply because they could find work there. Uh, Tony Jackson was one. Frankie Jackson was another. Uh, there are many, many, many people that I mention in the book who either were from Chicago or moved there uh, who found themselves at that particular point in Chicago, Bronzeville, uh, as entertainers. And this included a number of drag queens, what we would call drag queens, who uh, performed on the stages of various cabarets and cafes and other places, theaters, for example, uh, in Bronstown. 
we should point out, and your, your book makes a very good case for this, it was universally popular. I mean, it wasn't just people from the gay community that came to see uh, what we today call drag queens and female impersonators. Tourists. It was tourists. People came from all over to, to go to the clubs. They, they were packed in there to see these people. So why was this so important, Jim? It was important to the gay culture because it was a, an, a time, an event, uh, in which men could be what they thought of as themselves. Uh, in those days, unlike now perhaps, uh, gay men often dressed in women's clothing, not because they were really um, interested in women's clothing, but but to signal to other men, particularly to what we would call today the, the masculine or the butch men, uh, that they were interested in sex with other men. Uh, in terms of the theater productions of, of drag queens and stuff, um, it was simply a way of, of all sorts of people to get together and be entertained. Uh, you have to remember that the drag queens in those days did not simply lip-sync as they do now. They actually sang and danced. Uh, they often rewrote popular songs to make them uh, salacious uh, and uh, maybe to gear them toward uh, the gay culture using uh, words that would be very important to gay men and perhaps not known to the heterosexual audience. Um, but you have to remember that, that especially during the, the 20s, during what historians have called the pansy craze, uh, gay men uh, were seen as comrades in a battle against the uh, more conservative elements in society. And those who did not think of them that way still would go to their shows just to be entertained or, or even to make fun of them. Uh, they could go home then and talk to their uh, neighbors about the weird people they were uh, watching on stage the night before. There was an ad that I found uh, that was uh, published very early in one of the, the newspapers in Chicago, and it was advertising um, a drag contest. And the um, at a and this contest would be at a ball, a masquerade ball, and uh, the ad was aimed at families. It was not a aimed at the gay culture, but at the heterosexual culture, family people, and it said, "Bring your kids to see the funny sights." Now that could have been something by which they meant. Uh, something like what we would think of as homophobia, or it could mean simply that men dressed as women sometimes were funny-looking, or it could also mean that there were other costumes at the same time that were funny, clowns or whatever. Uh, we really don't know what they meant by it, but they invited the entire family, not simply gay people. So it became very quickly uh, in gay history, at least in Chicago, uh, and a, a situation in which many people could enjoy uh, uh, drag. Lorenzo Bonyard recalled that in the early 1930s, he would watch scores of female impersonators traipse down to the street corner swishing. It was a familiar scene in Bronzeville when he was an adolescent. Banyard had moved to Chicago the same year that Gerber founded the Society for Human Rights and was very aware of some of the queer men in the neighborhood. I'd be standing at the corner, he continued, watching them, taking it all in, because I admired them, you know? They had this long hair and the makeup and everything. Plus, there was making money, too, for dancing. A few years later, Banyard, who had realized he was queer when he was 12, became a female impersonator himself and adopted the name Nancy Kelly. He appeared on the cabin in stage with Valda Gray, Petite Swanson, the sepia Joan Crawford, and the sepia Mae West, the queer African-American female impersonator superstars of Bronzeville. All of them performed at its hottest night spots. Whether appearing as solo artists or in a chorus line, Bronzeville's female impersonators appeared on the same stages as its musical giants, such as Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, and Cab Calloway. 
Their glimmering sequined gowns, expensive wigs, high heels, and ever-flawless makeup guaranteed fans would not simply lionize them, but follow them puppy-dog-like from one cabaret to another, from theater to dance hall to cabaret. To be sure, there were other talented female impersonators around Bronzeville, Jean LaRue, Nina Mae McKay, Peaches Browning, Doris White, Frances Deed, Dixie Lee, but they were only good, perhaps better than average, but it never quite earned the superstar status. One of Chicago's entertainment reviewers claimed that there were countless female impersonators on the Windy City stages, but that didn't mean they were all equally talented. He noted that quite a few can dress and look the part, and yet too many of those have no stage ability. Some can sing but cannot dance, others handle their feet well on the floor but cannot sing. The reviewer concluded it really requires a combination of dance and song to win a place in one of these floor shows. Queer Men had become fixtures in Bronzeville almost as soon as its first cabaret opened its doors. Although the owners of the cafes and cabarets where the female impersonators performed were flaunting Chicago's ordinance against individuals wearing, quote, a dress not belonging to his or her sex, unquote, in public, and although female impersonators might face a backlash from some of their family members, neighbors, and strangers because they cross-dressed and were queer, they also earned respect and even envy from many others. The cabarets in which they performed offered them better than average salaries. While Lorenzo Banyard made $12 a week at his day job as a dishwasher at OYMCA, his alter ego, Nancy Kelly, earned $10 a show, three shows a night, during the weekends. In short, he earned five times as much as a female impersonator during the weekend than he did at his day job the rest of the week. Female impersonators sang, they didn't lip-sync to recordings, risque renditions of popular songs, told off-color jokes, and hobnobbed with the audience. They brought droves of fans into the cabarets and theaters where they performed, among them nationally known celebrities. It wasn't an easy job either, as it may appear to have been. The sepia Gloria Swanson, knee Walter Winston, who was considered the best of the best, quote, literally entertained all night, entrancing patrons with a whiskey voice, his every gesture and mannerisms more feminine than those of any female, his corsets pushing his plumpness into a sweltering and well-modeled bosom. Sports spoke to artist Lindsay French, currently exhibiting at Bridgeport's Learning Machine. French discussed her fascination with all things vegetal and how she used poison ivy in her latest work. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I, it's our pleasure. Um, you might be the most local guest we've ever had. Wow, that's amazing. It's really, I mean, being here in Bridgeport, we're kind of, we want to explore Bridgeport. Um, but to be perfectly frank, we're just in this radio booth at Co Prosperity Spirit. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it was exciting to me when I went to the opening of your latest show. I was like, oh, we are a stone's throw away <laughs> from the box I hang out in on Wednesday mornings. Yes. So yeah, I think I just, Will you tell us about Plants and Animals at The Learning Machine, our co-prosperity neighbor, and maybe a little bit about the work that you have in the show? Sure. Start us off. Yeah. Um, so Learning Machine is right next door, or just a couple buildings <laughs> yeah. away. Um, and it was this, like, giant group show that was organized by Rebecca Ladita. Um and so I think I met like waving people to and fro in the space. Yeah, yeah. She was really gathering people in and um, yeah, letting everybody know when performances were happening. And um, yeah, and also she was set up on the street like outside of Learning Machine all week as everybody was installing. But um, yeah, super big show, Plants and Animals. And it was kind of drawing from Donna Haraway. Um, and on Haraway's ideas about cyborgs and monsters. Um, and so a lot of the work in the show is dealing with plants and animals, but from a kind of more of a 
cyborg or in the uh, future yeah plants in the of. subtitle is plants and yeah. animals in the future <laughs> exactly um yeah so it was great it was awesome to be part of like such a big rad group of artists do you um, know how many artists are in the show i don't i Every- think it was like 20 or 30 <sighs> artists it was a ton yeah maybe a little maybe between like 15 and 30 artists but yeah it was a big group show it's a lot of impact yeah. More than yeah. zero, less than a million. More, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, something I learned really early when I moved to Chicago is if you want a lot of people to come to your show, it's have a lot of people in the show. It's true because everybody comes and then they bring their friends and then you're like, man, what a good turnout. And yeah. you get to meet all of these, you know, great people who care about plants. <laughs> I mean, that's like and really, animals. Yeah. And yeah. animals. Yeah, I forget about the animal part of it. but Well, and so plant-centric. Yeah. Out of all... 20 odd artists mm-hmm. who are in the show you your work is featured very prime like very primarily in the exhibition well yeah we it was like pretty open to like how the show was set up and i was originally planning actually on bringing in so i guess the work is um well, if I'm just going to describe it, it's just um, <laughs> do it. Uh, lard, just do it. lard spread on the windows, the front windows with poison ivy leaves pressed into them. That's kind of like literally what it is. Might I point out that lard does come from an animal? <laughs> yes, I know. That's why I chose lard. I was playing around with um, palm oil <laughs> instead, but the lard actually was a better choice. Lard from around here, actually. Um, local lard. Local lard, yeah. I've been called worse. I was going to say. <laughs> and like actually, a- the lard is more local than the poison ivy. I had to go gather the poison ivy from um, from outside of the city. Yeah, <laughs> Lindsay French, the only artist who goes in in pursuit of poison ivy. It's harder. Foreign than you poison think. ivy, local lard. Yeah. <laughs> so, poison ivy, lard yeah. together. Yeah. At last. At last. <laughs> to what effect? Finally. Yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah. So it's borrowing from this perfuming technique called enfleurage, or somebody who speaks French might be able to like pronounce that better. Well, luckily, <laughs> we only speak international art English here oh, on this great, show. Cool. So. The only French I speak <laughs> is your last name. Le yeah, That's the only yeah. French I speak <laughs> as well, actually. Um, but yeah, so it's using this kind of old perfuming technique where you press. Uh, flower petals or other types of plant material into a fatty substance and then over the course of a few days the fragrant oils are um, kind of removed from the plant and then sit in the fat Um, and then you know the last part of that process is to add a solvent and then you're left with just the kind of pure fragrance Um, so the solvent dissolves the lard Right. Okay. Because yeah. I just, yeah, I was having like some really gross mental images happening. Yeah. Well, if you don't dissolve the lard, then you get this thing called pomade. I think it's called pomade, but it's like For a kind hair. of fatty, fragrant substance. But but I'm not interested in fragrance with the poison ivy. Um, I don't actually. Shockingly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to extract the arushiol, which is the um, chemical in poison ivy that humans are, or some humans are allergic to. So I don't actually think it will smell, but I'm hoping that this process will transfer to that part of the plant. So you're making like a poison window in process on the on the storefront window of the learning machine. Yeah, like an an extraction. Yeah, it's not. It is. It's not poisonous, but people are, a lot of people it's are allergic to it. Allergic. It's an allergen. Yeah. Aller- you're creating a giant allergy wall. Kind of. Yeah, kind of. Is there is there uh, a, a direction that the lard will go in post, uh, like, is there a use of, of the lard once it's, what, and name the chemical again? Yeah, it's, it's called a ruchiol. A ruchiol, okay. Yeah. Um, is that our term of the day? No. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I will go through the full process of trying to extract the arushiol. Um, so I'll scrape dissolve the, lard the yeah, I'll scrape the lard off um, and try to dissolve the lard and see if I get any of the pure arushiol. Um, and I've used pure arushiol for other projects in the past. Um, oh, we'll get into it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so yes, I may try to extract that. I've shown just the kind of like poor extraction methods where I've had like very, very diluted um, 
uh, like concentrations of it. But you can also just buy just like another <laughs> kind of <laughs> note here. Um, there's this type of tree that's common name is the lacquer tree that grows in Japan. Um, and it's traditionally used to lack, you can do like, you can lacquer wood with it. So you can buy like um, tubes of So it's like a cannibalistic tree. Like you uh, use the yeah. tree to cover other trees. Yeah, use the tree to cover other trees That's and preserve them. Yeah. So so wait, so can the Arushiel be, is the Arushiel like the, what is that? Is that only with poison ivy or is that like the essence of any plant yeah so it's the like it's not the essence of any plant but it is the chemical compound that is in the in poison ivy and other related plants so i think i'm not totally sure about there's probably a botanist who could answer this better but um the like poison ivy is toxicodendron that's the genus and it's definitely um, present in those and it might be even like in the family but like mango trees and cashews and the lacquer tree and poison sumac and poison oak those all have a ruchiel i learned that at or i learned that cashews and mangoes uh are related to poison ivy at the field museum oh yeah where i think botanists hang out the field museum is great you're those like our displays, botanist for the I day love those. <laughs> Me too. well i'm not a botanist <laughs> i just nerd out about plants well and so i mean Aside from the potentially uh, allergic properties, it does it like is a like a mural window display. Yeah, yeah, it's rather beautiful. Oh, thank you. And I'm, I think there, based on what you were saying, I feel like t- three things kind of are like circulating in my brain, which is like the kind of dangerous, violent properties of this plant. Mm-hmm. The relation to cosmetics, which I think is really interesting, mm-hmm. um, and uh, in pure Dana fashion, I just forgot. Two is uh, good. Two is good. Well, mm-hmm. and aesthetics, I guess, like and the aesthetic third, of like kind question. of <laughs> making, <laughs> taking this like poisonous thing and you know enacting these chemical processes in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The public part I think is important um, to me partially, or like yeah. Where should I, well, where should I start? That's a lot of questions. <laughs> let me let me uh, ask a very simple question uh-huh. that may be prime. Are you allergic? Oh yeah, okay. I am. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So while you were installing, mm-hmm. um, like what, like how, what's the process of installing to to generate the? And we can describe maybe more in detail even of, of what the actual aesthetic is of the piece. Yeah. Um, so. The process, so um, before I even get to installing, I have to gather the poison ivy. Um, So I have a box of, like, medical gloves that I wear um, to go gather with, like, um, and I have actually, like, several bottles of um, poison ivy (laughs) antidote, yeah, um, that I leave, like, in my studio or, like, in my backpack or in my house um, to kind of try to deactivate it. But I wear gloves. I go gather the poison ivy, um, as soon as you cut the plant or break the plant, the oil releases and starts to oxidize, so it'll eventually turn kind of blackish-brown. Um, but, like, you don't see that until it hits the air. Um, so, yeah, I try to gather that. Um, I try to be as cautious as I can. Um, but then when I'm installing, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have small amounts of poison ivy on my skin now, but it's, like, pretty contained. <laughs> Now we could do a show about the squirrels of Bridgeport. I think what we need to focus on. Oh, are you okay? Oh my God! Kyle, sort through your mail. It's all junk. Just throw it out. No, you pick it up. It can't be strewn all over the entrance. It's a hazard. Last thing we need is another visit from the fire marshal. Last thing I need is less time to do all the crap around here. I gotta do. You have no idea how much. What the flip is their problem? Uh, John's identity got stolen a while back. Say what? Ooh, that's it. That's the show we're going to do about. English, please. On this episode, we're going to do an investigative report on identity theft. Every year, exactly 323 Americans get their identities took. Size matters investigates. Hang on, did you fact check that? That's the fact that I said the thing. If that figure is exact, then the entire country is a nation of identity thieves. A plausible dystopia indeed. Science Matters investigates. 
I met up with the host of Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly, to expose the truth about identity theft. All these cool beers. This one's a Rhode Island Dirty IPA. I wanted to try Hello, good sirs. We're recording an episode of Size Matters. I know. I can see that. What's the episode about? Identity theft and the thieves who steal them. I would like to keep that a private matter. And the not... jig is up. How long you been gallivanting around as other people? That, that is not what Who's I... staring in the meat suit? The what? This is good stuff. Keep going. Don't agonize. Inspl- explain yourself, imposter. Speak. Someone used my personal information to go on a shopping spree. I think he's lying. That sounds rehearsed Yeah, it me. does. Jess, what the... Ow. Hey, not cool. <laughs> then tell me who you is. My identity got stolen. I wasn't taken over by the body snatchers or the talented Mr. Ripley. Or the thing. The what? The 1982 John Carpenter classic or the 1930s classic. So wait, someone stole your credit card. Credit cards, PIN, social security Uh, number, all that kind of stuff. uh, That's kind of boring. I can't do a whole show on that. Don't look at me. I think your concept of identity theft is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, I totally see that now. That's good producing, Jess. Yeah, I'm great. Kyle, just be glad you're incapable of having your identity stolen. How so? No address, no records. What about all the mail? That's right. What? You are on the grid. It's all junk. Credit card offers and social security, what have you. Well, hang on. Credit card offers? Yeah. That means you have credit. Wait a sec. How many credit cards do you have? I ain't never had one. I'm checking here on the net to see if you have anything open in your name. Oh, yeah. Just my suitcase. Calm down, down I just Kyle. Use my suitcase. I'm using your suitcase because it's what I got to do. Kyle, you're freaking okay. out. You need okay. to relax. I've never okay. seen him okay. so distraught. John, how long has this guy been using uh, Kyle's info? About 30 years. <laughs> Just hold on. Let's see where in Scottsdale, Arizona, this guy lives. Wow. That is a nice piece of property. What? Property? Gets worse. You paid for med school. What? You got to be Kyle, kidding me. don't worry. We're going to kill this middle finger. Yeah, I don't know about that, but we're going to confront them. I got to go find him. Someone buy me a plane ticket. I made my way to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met up with a man going by the name of Kyle Seismankowski. We agreed to meet up in an industrial park outside of... Ah, crud, the battery on the portable recorder's about to die. I'll talk fast. We agreed to meet up... Hey, Kyle's alive! Boy, what a trip. What a great time I had. Did you end up using the lie? The what? Uh, so is that guy in prison or what? Actually, this jerk turned out to be one of the coolest people I've ever met in my whole life. Say what? Yeah, he's got a great taste in clothes, cars, and this house is so big, I learned a new word to describe it. Palatial. This is the man who stole your information? Not at all. Turns out his name is also Kyle Seismankowski, and he was also born on September 29th, 1946 in Chicago. Well, that's because he ripped you off. No, it turns out it's just a coincidence. Kyle, for years he's been using your credit to establish himself in society while you've been stuck squatting and mooching. Not entirely. No, actually completely. Now, it just so happens that we have identical social security numbers. The only difference is he actually has a social security card and a birth certificate. You don't? Nope. My dad just wrote all my information down on an index card and told me not to lose it. I gotta go and pack. Excuse me, guys. Wait. I'm confused. If Kyle Seismankowski of Scottsdale, Arizona has proof of who he is... Then who is our Kyle Seismankowski? Size Matters Investigates? This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump imposes tariffs on the United States' closest allies trying to stop Mercedes-Benz rolling down Fifth Avenue. Rudy Giuliani claims Trump could have shot someone and still not be indicted. Trump's lawyers, in essence, claim he is a king. Kim Kardashian says yes, while the Eagles say hell no. And Melania Trump, where is she? These are the Trump Diaries. Day 497, May 31st. A judge ordered Michael Cohen's lawyers to complete their review of materials by this weekend. Federal prosecutors are expected to receive 1 million files from three of Cohen's seized cell phones. Investigators have already received nearly 300,000 pieces of potential evidence from those raids. So far, only 252 items have been flagged as privileged materials. The FBI also obtained tape of Cohen threatening a reporter from the Daily Beast. They also seized documents that Cohen was attempting to shred in a hotel room. 
Trump publicly bragged about a classified battle during a closed-door fundraiser. An incident involving U.S. Air Forces and Russian mercenaries had been closely guarded. Trump claimed he was amazed by the actions of the American F-18 pilots, claimed strikes lasted 10 minutes, and alleged they killed 300 Russians on Syrian soil. Kim Kardashian met with Trump at the White House. Kanye West's wife asked Trump to pardon a woman serving a life sentence for a first-time drug offense. Trump shared a picture of the meeting on Instagram, which immediately drew cheers from the internet. And Ivanka Trump quit a conference call after reporters asked her about her company's trademarks in China. Reporters started asking questions about the trademarks recently awarded and seemingly linked to her father's bailout of ZTE, the banned Chinese telecom firm. She refused to answer. Day 498, June 1st. Trump said he was imposing tariffs on metals imported from our closest allies. Tariffs of 25% in steel and 10% on aluminium from the European Union, Canada, and Mexico took effect at midnight. Trump cited national security. However, the moves have met with a withering response from our allies as well as business and Congress, which warned the possibility of a trade war and a recession. The European Union is also expected to announce retaliatory tariffs on the United States, including products such as bourbon, Levi's jeans, cranberries, and peanut butter. Trump also may block luxury cars from Germany. Trump reportedly told French President Emmanuel Macron he, quote, doesn't want to see all those Mercedes is rolling down Fifth Avenue. Trump pardoned conservative author Dinesh D'Souza, who was convicted of campaign finance violations. Trump said he was also considering pardoning Martha Stewart and commuting the sentence of Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. The trio were convicted of crimes which mirror the ones Trump's associates are being investigated for by the special counsel. Trump claimed D'Souza was treated, quote, very unfairly by our government. D'Souza, who has claimed he was targeted for his anti-Obama views, tweeted that, quote, karma is a bitch. Andrew McCabe wrote a memo claiming Trump had asked Rod Rosenstein to reference Russia when firing James Comey, according to an incendiary report in the New York Times. McCabe's memo suggests Comey's firing was indeed rooted in the Russian investigation and that Rosenstein was simply providing cover in referencing the Clinton email investigation. In addition, Trump continues to pressure Attorney General Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself and seize control of the Russian investigation. As we noted last week, this information has been given to Robert Mueller as part of his obstruction of justice investigation. Sessions has refused. Comedian Samantha B. apologized after calling Ivanka Trump a feckless word we cannot say on the airwaves. Trump called for B to lose her job and claimed there was a, quote, total double standard regarding reactions to B's comments compared to those surrounding Roseanne Barr's racist tweet. Day 499, June 2nd. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau backed out of a meeting with Trump to discuss the renegotiation of NAFTA because Vice President Mike Pence called him and told him the meeting was contingent on a five-year sunset clause. Trudeau called that precondition totally unacceptable. He added, until that point, negotiations had been win-win-win for everyone and said the sunset clause would create havoc for company supply lines. On this news, the Canadian dollar and the Mexican peso fell relative to the American dollar. American employers added 223,000 jobs in May, bringing the national unemployment rate to an 18-year low of 3.8%. Trump broke protocol by tweeting positive news about those numbers before they were released. Scott Pruitt signed off on the purchase of $1,500 worth of fountain pens. He also accepted courtside seats at a Kentucky basketball game from a major coal baron whose company he is allegedly regulating. In both cases, Pruitt denied having made the purchase or accepting a gift. In addition, a senior EPA official acted as a personal assistant to the administrator, helping him heart for an apartment, travel to a college football game. He even tried to procure a used mattress from the Trump International Hotel. This is in clear violation of federal ethics guidelines. Day 500, June 3rd. Trump's lawyers have asserted he cannot be questioned by special counsel Robert Mueller in a confidential memo leaked to the New York Times. The document makes the remarkable assertion that Trump could not have obstructed justice because he enjoys unfettered authority over all federal officers. This move implies that Trump should be thought of as a monarch, which is counter to the framers' intent. Trump's lawyers are worried that if he is subpoenaed by Mueller, he will commit perjury. Rudy Giuliani claimed that Trump could have shot former FBI head James Comey while in the Oval Office and still couldn't be indicted for it. Quote, in no case can he be subpoenaed or indicted. I don't know how you can indict while he's in office, no matter what it is. If he shot James Comey, he'd be impeached the next day. Impeach him and then you can do whatever you want to him. Democrats said they would take Julie up on that advice. Trump announced the summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was back after abruptly canceling it a fortnight ago. The meeting is still scheduled for June 12th in Singapore. Day 501, June 4th. 
Trump tweeted that the appointment of the special counsel in the Russian investigation is totally unconstitutional and claimed that he has the power to pardon himself, raising the prospect he might immunize himself from the ongoing probe. Trump said that he would not have to pardon himself because he had done nothing wrong, but insisted he had the right to do so, which ignores actual legal opinions on the matter. Nixon-era case law says he does not. These tweets may be related to revelations that Trump dictated Trump Jr.'s statement about a meeting with a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower during the 2016 campaign. This is a key point in the Mueller investigation and can be taken as an attempt to pervert or obstruct justice. Trump's decision to intervene in the response had not previously been reported. Rudy Giuliani said in a damaging quote to ABC that, quote, our recollection keeps changing about the meeting and that, quote, this is the reason you don't let this president testify in the special counsel's investigation. The Supreme Court sided with the Colorado Bakers 7-2 along narrow grounds in a closely watched case that pitted gay rights against claims of religious freedom. The baker, Jack Phillips, had refused to create a custom wedding cake for a gay couple. The Supreme Court said a state commission had violated the protection of religious freedom in ruling against him. However, the same decision also strongly reaffirmed protections for gay rights and said that other cases raising similar issues could be decided differently. And Melania Trump will reportedly skip the G7 summit in Quebec and the June 12th summit in Singapore with North Korea. Melania Trump has only rarely been seen in public since May 10th after apparently undergoing a routine kidney procedure. Rumors about her absence continue to swirl. Day 502, June 5th. Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, currently free on bail as he fights charges related to the Russian investigation, has been accused now of witness tampering. Manafort allegedly attempted to contact and coach witnesses while in custody. Robert Mueller has moved now to have Manafort's bail revoked and have him placed in jail. Trump suddenly canceled a celebration for the Philadelphia Eagles at the White House after the majority of that team said they would not attend. The players said they would not attend due to Trump's attacks on them. Trump said in a statement, quote, the Philadelphia Eagles are unable to come to the White House with their full team to be celebrated. They disagree with their president because he insists that they proudly stand for the national anthem, hand on heart, in honor of the great men and women of our military and the people of our country. In response, several members of the Eagles called Trump a liar. Trump continued to poke the NFL on the anthem issue, tweeting, quote, there should be no escaping to locker rooms. The White House unblocked the accounts of seven Twitter users who had sued Trump from barring them or viewing and responding to his tweets, even as Trump is looking to appeal a federal judge's ruling on the matter. The judge had not ordered Trump to unblock them as part of the ruling, instead leaving it up to the White House. And Vladimir Putin startled Austrian TV viewers when he responded to a question about the USA by saying that he and Trump speak on the phone quite often. Putin had been asked why there were no meetings between the USA and Russia. Trump also tweeted that he blames Jeff Sessions for the ongoing Russia investigation. Quote, the Russian wish hunt hoax continues all because Jeff Sessions didn't tell me he was going to recuse himself. I would have quickly picked someone else. So much time and money wasted, so many lives ruined, and Sessions knew better than most that there was no collusion. Speaking of wasted time and money, Mueller's investigation has cost the taxpayer $16.7 million to date and counting. Trump's trips to Mar-a-Lago have cost the taxpayer $17 million and counting. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting left, welcome back to Amara Ania, the one-time mayoral candidate and public policy activist. Ania discussed left-wing politics, building a coalition for change, and whether or not a progressive candidate will emerge in the mayoral race. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. How you perceive a viable candidate, someone who's willing to knock on doors and to, you know, for, go out on a, in, I think the election is at the end, the mayor's race, is, uh, the primary is at the end of April, so. And the, uh, it's in February. It's it's in February. Yes. The, the general election's in, in. The runoff, if there's a runoff, it's in April. It's in April, mm-hmm. yeah. So in February. That means knocking on doors in Chicago in uh, January and February yes. and March. Um, but you were a supporter of Kennedy in the in the governor's race. Yes. Was did you view him as somebody who, who people would go out and knock on doors in in a Chicago winter for? And uh, uh, when I was thinking about when the gubernatorial race started, um, I wasn't fond of any of the candidates, quite frankly. But the the determining factor that I told myself was that. 
I would give a second listen to someone who was equally as critical of the Democrats as they were of the Republicans. The reason being is because a lot of the issues in the state of Illinois did not emerge within just the last four years. If we look at our tax policy, if we look at what happened with pensions and pension theft, if we look at um, a lot of the how much we spend on incarceration versus investing across the state, those are issues that have existed even when we had Democratic majorities and Democratic governors. And so my issue was with the status quo. And anyone who can be honest and have an honest conversation about critiquing that is someone that I would give an an ear to. Uh, Kennedy was the only one at the time who was critical of uh, Mike Madigan, who was critical of the property tax system, which is something that's very important to me. He really was willing to call out the inequities in that system. Um, And as you saw, at least toward the latter half of, of his campaign, he really spoke frankly about issues like gentrification, like displacement, like Chicago having 250,000 fewer fewer black residents um, in 15 years' time. And he spoke very candidly on those issues. Um, I think that he, um, you know, it's hard to to tell who would knock doors and be enthusiastic. I think he has a family legacy that resonates uh, particularly with older voters that might have been more excited about him. But for me, it was important to have someone who could speak the truth about the Democrats as well as the Republicans, because the status quo has to yeah. change. I don't, I don't want to spend the, really too much more time on talking about looking back at that race. Mm-hmm. But um, but when you talked about finding a candidate who didn't just emerge uh, just prior to an election, uh, that seemed to be true about, I mean, uh, uh, Chris Kennedy's been in, in Chicago for uh, 30 years, and other than running uh, the the uh, merchandise mart and head of the uh, uh, University of Illinois, in which his actions were politically questionable, at least from uh, I think from our point of view, he he wasn't someone who was like engaged uh, in the kind of way I think we're talking about being politically engaged in the the kind of reforms that the city needs or the state in in his case the state. Yeah, I think there's two levels. So one is there. there's a difference between a statewide and a citywide campaign. And also the calculus for me, that was my personal calculus, looking at the state level issues, was that the challenge, the status quo needed to be challenged and it need to, needed to be called out. And so there were no candidates who were speaking frankly about the issues that I care about, which were around inequity, about property taxes, about the problems within the Democratic Party, about being honest about what we have done or not done um, at the state level. That was the calculus that I used in that in that particular race. Um, In the mayoral race, because that's where I do most of my work is at the city level and knowing who has been engaged on many of the issues that we talk about, it's much easier to see who's been doing what on the ground in the city of Chicago, at least over the last seven years. And so if someone emerges and all of a sudden is saying, hey, well, I'm the progressive uh, candidate, or even if you have to say it to me, that's very telling because you should just be recognized because you've been in those spaces on those issues. And so it's a much it's much easier, I think, to really um, focus on the track record locally because it, you can get your hands around it. At the state level, though, my calculus was definitely about challenging the status quo of the the vacuum of power that is consolidated in the hands of one person in the state. And if we don't address that, you really can't. You can hardly address any of the other things that are happening in the state level. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, let's talk about some of the local Chicago issues that are going to that are going to or at least could impact the mayor's race. Uh, one of them, of course, is the Chicago public schools, and we've had a lot of uh, of uh, news come out about the. Well, it's almost a daily flood of news about the corruption. The, you know, the, the, well, first of all, you got to start from the point of view that once again. Chicago has been rated the most corrupt <laughs> city in the country, yeah. and you have a situation where the public school system is under the wing of City Hall, the most corrupt city hall in the nation. And so the things that that are happening kind of flow, in my at least in my view, kind of flow from that basic thing. And yes, one of them has been the privatization of uh, uh, maintenance and janitorial, janitorial services, services and and all that, and and being put in the hands of Sodexo, Magic, and uh, Aramark. And did so, you see the story? So, did you follow the story about uh, about Fow- about the one? Yes. Who, so, Leslie Fowler. So, so, so yeah. here they outsource they outsource <laughs> custodial care to Aramark. They hire a woman from Aramark, who uh, had black, no a black woman, who has no. She was she was in, her experiences in food services. Mm-hmm. So that, 
she gets hired by CPS by uh, Claypool to be in charge of uh, food services. Then when they outsource the job to Aramark in terms of maintenance, he goes up to her and he says, look, we'll change your title. We'll give you 20 grand more and you be in charge of facilities management. Right. And then when it all goes south, they fire her. Yes. <laughs> that's yes. Yes, that's, that is the epitome of how they operate. Instead of addressing the systemic issues, which is why Aramark and Sodexo Magic actually got a larger contract got a after <laughs> it was found she that they were incompetent. She got fired, they got a she bigger gets, contract. Exactly. She gets essentially thrown under the bus. I mean, this is what the mayor does. There's a person that they can throw under the bus. They'll never address the actual issue, and then they'll just keep moving along until they can find another person to put in that position and that's what they did in this case it's the the contract is larger she's gone and they'll find someone else that they can put in to perpetuate this the systemic issues that have led to filthy schools uh and janitorial services that can't be relied upon and in the meantime the the, the privatization of school services and the schools themselves goes on yes and it's uh Obviously corrupt. Another report came out this week uh, about Deborah Quazzo, who yes. we've known about for for years. years. Yeah, and suddenly the IG, uh, you know, exposes that she's pro- profiteering. Her or, only yeah. role, the only reason why she's on the board of education was to profit personally. And she said that. It, I mean, essentially, she, said, she was, said, "Here's she she would do training sessions on here's how you make money off of." public school systems. I mean, the level of corruption and incompetence that is so blatant within all, many, across many departments, we look at the law department, same thing. They had to oust the head of that department. Look at uh, Barbara Burbendon is gone. Forrest Claypool is gone. The controller who had to be extradited, I think, from Pakistan is gone. Right. I mean, these are, this, is, this characterizes this administration. Nothing but years of incompetence and corruption that is then swept aside for these distractions like, oh, we'll do special education for, or pre, what is it? Um, preschool for all or these little things that they dangle out there to try to distract you from the fact that this is an administration that is incompetent. Next week, Dos Santos released their forthcoming album Logos, which was primarily recorded here at Co-Prosperity Sphere. Lumpin Radio is proud to debut a new song from Dos Santos off that album. This is the world premiere of You Are My Revolution.
The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lump and Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lump and Theme, background and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lump and Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.